0: Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19. Go to continue in our series if we just walk through scripture together and just study God's word as we just go on a journey uh, in the one-year Bible, and so we're finishing up Exodus, we're beginning Leviticus, but you're going to notice that in Exodus, really from 13, Exodus 13 to the end, we see the focus on the law, and we see the focus kind of summarized right here in Exodus 19 and 20, 20 being the Ten Commandments, and this idea that God is making a covenant with His people through the law, and so we... Uh, are going to kind of just focus on Exodus nineteen twenty, and then we'll in, and get to chapter twenty four uh, as we look at just the whole purpose and the idea of the law and what it has to do. We're asking the question tonight: What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? And so, if you would, Exodus chapter nineteen, just beginning in verse three, we're going to read. While Moses went up to God, the Lord God called to him. Um, excuse me, the Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, "Thus." you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel of Israel. Hey, problem. Do you mind pulling me down just a little bit? I'm ringing in my ears. Thanks. So Exodus 19, we're asking the question, what is the purpose of the law? And I just want to jump right into answering that question. There's four answers we're going to give to that. But first, before we answer the, what the purpose of the law is, we want to give one answer to what the purpose of the law is not. Okay. What is the purpose of the law is not? First is this simply and straightforward. The purpose of the law is not to save you, when we think about this idea and we talk about the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that is clearly and explicitly taught in the old testament i mean excuse me in the New Testament that because of our sin we 're separated from God and we 're under his judgment and his wrath because he 's a holy and loving God, and he expects perfection, and when we 're not perfect, we owe him a debt of our lives, and that either because of our sin, it will cost us the debt of our lives unless there is a redemption payment. That is paid. We talked about this last week. And we see that in Jesus, he is that redemption payment. And so through Christ and through his death and resurrection, we can have the forgiveness of our sins through grace and be saved through grace. Now, that's clear. And we preach that. And we're going to communicate that. But one of the misconceptions that often comes as a pastor and even for myself early on studying scripture was this paradox or this contradiction that seemed to be in Scripture where the New Testament salvation was by grace, but in the Old Testament salvation was being obedient to the laws and commandments of God. And because God expected you to earn salvation through the laws and the commandments of the Old Testament, but we couldn't live up to that, then salvation came in plan B through Jesus. And I want us to see tonight that from the very beginning that misconception is wrong that there is salvation by grace in the Old and the New Testament. Paul would talk about this in Romans and Galatians, which we're not going to get to tonight, but there are he addresses that question specifically. So how in the Old Testament, here in this passage, do we see that the purpose of the law is not to save you? Exodus chapter 19, read with me in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I want you to see what verse 4 and verse 5 does. Verse 4 says that God, you know what I did as your Lord. I brought you out of Egypt. I was like an eagle who swooped in, grabbed you, saved you from slavery, brought you to myself. Therefore, obey my commandments. We see right here where God is making a covenant with his people through the law that already we see that the law is a response and secondary to the fact that he has already showed his love on them by saving them through grace. They didn't do anything to to earn their salvation from Egypt. They didn't do anything to earn for God to love them. But God in his grace... He looked upon them and chose them and he swooped down. I love the picture here of an eagle. Think about it. Think of a mighty eagle just soaring and flying. And he looks down below and he says, I want that. And he swoops down. You give this picture of a diving. He swoops down, grabs that thing that he wants, and then takes off. This is the picture of what is happening. God's saying, I swooped down and I grabbed you out of Egypt. And I brought you and carried you unto myself. Therefore. Therefore. Go and obey my commandments. I want us to see the commandments. We're going to look at the purpose of this. But from the very beginning, we've got to get that the commandments of the law, which are summed up in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, specifically Exodus and following, is that all the commandments God has given. 613 commandments God has given in those passages. We see in Exodus 20 that they're all summarized in the Ten Commandments. We've probably heard of those before. And all of it, we often see as a misconception that this is the means in which we earn God's grace or love. But we're seeing from the very beginning. But God's saying, no, no, no. I swooped down and grabbed you unto myself. Now, therefore, obey my commandments. So before we can really comprehend the purpose of the law, we got to understand what the purpose of the law is not and is not to save us. We're going to see this throughout, but I want us to see that salvation by grace is in all of Scripture, from Genesis 3 and sin all the way to the end, and even here with the law. So it then asks the question, well, if I thought the law was a means to earn God's blessing, love, and salvation and His grace, but you're telling me now that I have His grace and His love before the law was ever given then what's the purpose of the law? And that's what we want to look at tonight. Four purposes to law. The first is to develop a deep relational intimacy with God. If you got your fill in the blanks, there's nothing on the screen, so I'll I'll try to be clear so you can follow along. But truth one is to develop a deep relational intimacy with God. Look with me in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people's For all the earth is mine. Now, if we read verse 5 without reading verse 4, verse 5 sounds like what we just said it wasn't. That salvation and God's grace is through the obedience of the law. Because he says, if you obey my commandments, you will be my treasured possession. It sounds like his treasuring us and his love upon us is conditional. But that doesn't make sense because we already saw in verse 4, he already loved them and swooped down and saved them out of slavery. So, what does it mean here as this idea of treasure possession? I want to define uh, in the dictionary what treasure possession from the Hebrew of what that word means. It's one word translated treasure possession. It means a valued personal property that is owned by someone, which the owner has a special affection or holds a special value to. Into verse five says that all of the earth is the Lord's, but you will be my special possession. Think of it like a king who owns everything. But there's this one thing in his kingdom that he says is more special than anything else. And it's so special, I'm going to put it in my room. Like, I'm going to put it in my most treasured possession. This possession is more is better than anything else I own. I own it all, but this one thing is so special to me, I'm going to bring it in special unto myself. So when we think about this idea of treasured possession... It's this idea that because God has saved us, because God brought the people out of Israel, because He has saved them, He now is making a covenant relationship with them, and He is giving them commandments to obey, so that we, so that the people of God, specifically Israel here, the covenant community in Exodus nineteen, can be His treasured possession. But we still got to unpack: what do we mean by treasured possession? It's this picture of what. What God would say in Exodus 20, right after he gives the second commandment, and he says, you can make no other gods, make nothing out of idols, and to make no idols, no anything, for I am a jealous God. I want you to give the picture, this is best pictured in what we talk about as marriage. The closest thing we have here on earth to give a picture of this covenant that we're talking about, because this is a covenant being made here in Exodus 19, God with the people. It's a covenant. It's the same as when we talk about Genesis 15, a covenant. This is God renewing his covenant and making his covenant with the people. So imagine this being a marriage ceremony. Imagine in a marriage ceremony that I look at my wife and I tell her, you know what? I don't love you yet. But if once we get married and you keep all these commandments, eventually I will love you. Well, that's awful, right? No one's, you're not getting married in order to earn or try to get someone to get your love. You're getting married because you already love them. You're getting married because you already love them. But in that moment, when I give my vows, here's what I'm saying. I will be faithful to you, and I expect you to be faithful to me. For us to have this deep, intimate relationship where we treasure one another, there's an expectation of love, there's an expectation of forgiveness, and there's an expectation of faithfulness. When I was dating Jenna, and we fell in love, and all of those things, and Well, um, we're coming up on 10 years. I'm kind of excited about that. She said, where are you taking me for our 10-year anniversary? And I said, I didn't know I was, but I am now. And, you know, so our 10-year anniversary is coming up. And so when we're dating, I remember thinking back to dating. And I don't know a lot about her, and I'm learning about her. But because I'm falling in love with her, and because I really care about her, I want her to be happy. And so I start researching, I try to find out what she likes. Because I want to give her what she likes, right? I, I want her to be special, and I want... Uh, um, I want her to be special to me and I want to be special to her. And so I start finding out that she likes this type of food. And so I'm like, all right, I'm looking up restaurants that has that type of food and take her on that date or she likes this type of music. So I'm looking up those concerts. I like She likes, you know, this type of candy. So I'm bringing it to her. You know, I'm doing all these little things to try to find out what she wants so that I can reciprocate my love unto her, so that I can show my love unto her. Here's the picture of what God's saying. If you obey my commandments, you'll be my treasure possession. Why? Here's what he's saying. I love you, and I swooped down like an eagle, and I saved you. Now I'm telling you about me so that you can love me back in return. See, the commandments, and he says, obey my commandments, is not a means to its love, but it's a practical way that we can respond by showing our love unto him. Jesus would say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We show our love for God by being faithful to him and, being, and fulfilling the commandment. So, if we are going to be his treasured special possession, that does not mean that we've got to earn it. That does not mean we've got to earn his love. But it means that I am, he is a jealous God. And he's saying, here's what, I, here's what you need to know about me. Here's what I like. Therefore, be faithful to it. So that we can have this deep, intimate, treasured relationship. I want you to think about the idea of love in the expectation of faithfulness and commandments. Let me go back to the marriage scenario. Imagine that I make a vow with my wife, and one of the things I expect from her and she expects from me is faithfulness. She expects that throughout the time of our marriage, and I expect that she would be faithful. And why is that? That, that is a commandment in a sense, right? You see, it's an expectation. If you want to show your love to me, you will be faithful unto me. Meaning you will, you will give your love to me and me only. You see what happens in the... First commandment, that I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Like God's saying, I am the one you are faithful to. You show your love unto me. Now imagine that if my wife were unfaithful to me, part of me loving her and part of the gospel is, yes, let me forgive her. And love forgives much and love covers much sin, but love also expects and calls for sin to be eradicated from her life. Like if she is my wife or to be unfaithful, or a spouse is to be unfaithful, the gospel would say, yes, forgive that person, but at the same time, because you love them, you are jealous for their love, and you expect for them to return unto faithfulness. You, You see the idea here, what God is giving in his commandments, is saying, yes, I love you, yes, I will forgive you, but it's because I am jealous for you, and it's because I love you, I expect your faithfulness, and you can show me your faithfulness by being obedient, To your commandments. To give this picture an illustration, again, I was talking to Shamar and Shamar gave it to me, so I'll give him credit. Um, Shamar was saying, we were talking about this idea, and he said, I picture it this way. He said, Imagine there's two car owners. Car owner number one um, says he loves his car, but he has no expectations for his car. You can come in, you can eat in his car. You can have coffee without a top on it in his car. You can put your muddy shoes in his car. You can do whatever you want to his car. Car owner number one. Car owner number two is like, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't getting here with that food. Uh Uh-uh, you better get that mud off. You better care for it. You know, don't mess up my car, all these things. Which one loves their car more? Which one values their car more? The one that says anything can happen to it, I don't really care? Or the one that has expectations? See, we live in a culture that says, I want a loving God that gives me no expectations. Because God is loving, because he is forgiving, therefore, I can live however I want. But it's actually the fact that he loves us that he gives commandments for his car, so to speak. That he has a value for his car where he's going, you can't just do whatever you want. You you can't just treat this relationship however you want. It's because I love you, because I'm jealous for you. Here's how we can have a deep relational intimacy. Here's how we can have a treasured relationship is if you obey my commandments. You see, commandments and obedience is a response to his love. It's how we reciprocate his love back onto him, but it's not how we earn it. Salvation and love is not through obedience, but obedience is a response to his love already poured upon us. Truth number two, not only is the law given to give us relational intimacy, but the law is given to form a countercultural community. Look at verse six of chapter 19. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? What is this idea of you shall be unto me? I wanted you to give the picture of the fact that he chose them and he brought them out. A the lot of the commandments that are given to them are called civil commandments. Now, you've got to understand, there, his relationship with them is unique. Governmentally, it's unique. For us, we live in a democracy. But this was what is called a theocracy. The, theo, theos. It's a God government, meaning it's God is the ruler of the government. He sets the laws of the land. God literally is their king and is their government, so to speak. And so the laws that were given, a lot of them were civil A lot of them were ceremonial in how they do them, and a lot of them are moral. But these different types of law, one of the purposes was to create a holy nation that would look different than the world around them. One of the foundations, as he says, when God makes this covenant with Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 12, is I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. Right here, when he says you'll be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, you'll be a nation of priests, what what do priests do? Priests are people who serve in the presence of God, who bring and help other people come and serve in the presence of God. They bring people to the presence of God. They offer sacrifices for the people in the presence of God. They're the people who serve as an in-between God and other people. And what he's saying, you as a country... I am setting you apart as a countercultural community, a covenant community, and you as a country will serve as a priest. You'll be the intermediary where people who do not know me can know me through the blessings of your country, through the blessings of what's going on. So, a lot of the law was about initiating and communi- uh, or, or forming a community that was countercultural to the realm around them. And this is similar to what. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See the language? Very similar to what we've read. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's a picture that we, in 1 Peter, is talking about the covenant people as the church now. That the church, very similar to what the law did in the Old Testament. It helped formed a community that stood in contrast to the other world so it would display the goodness, the love, and the kingdom of God to the world around them. The picture is even furthermore the fact of where they're located when this is happening. They're around Mount Sinai. Now, if you study ancient cultures, one of the common things in ancient cultures is many cultures uh, were formed Uh, cities were formed around a ziggurat in the middle of the country. I mean, in the middle of the city. A ziggurat was a man-made mountain where there's a temple on top. It's a picture that what would happen is people would climb up the mountain to go worship at the temple and make sacrifices at the temple because they're closer to God. They, of, or the gods they were worshiping, and they would offer sacrifices to try to get the gods to bless them. This is a picture of what's happening in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. They're creating this tower to get to God, believing that at the center of that is where God blesses. So cities would be formed around these man-made mountains and temples at the top in order to get God's blessing, in order to allow him to be the center of what they're doing. I want you to notice that God, Exodus 19 is God has taken his people and put them around Mount Sinai. And instead of it being a man-made mountain, it's a God-made mountain. And instead of the people naturally earning and going up to God, God comes down and meets them there. And we see in a moment in Exodus 19 at the end of a passage we're not going to read, that we see Moses and the other elders, they go up to the mountain and meet and have a, 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 a communion with God in the picture. But the point is, it's an idea of a city. He is forming something new. He is forming a new community through the law. And this community is going to be different. Let me just give some simple illustrations along this line. When you look at a lot of the laws and you go through and read them, you're going, well, what is it? I don't understand this. One of the primary things as you go and read the laws is it talks about, and what you've already said, the civil laws of how you relate to one another. So for example, there's a lot of laws about tithing. There's a laws about how you use your money that you were to give a portion, the first portion of your of your fruits of vegetation or of livestock or of any type of business unto the Lord, unto the priest to to provide for the Levites and to be generous to other people. And in Deuteronomy, God specifically says in Deuteronomy 15, that if you are faithful to all of these things, then you will have enough resources to serve the people in your country and in your nation and your community and no one will be poor. See, what's happening there is that God is saying you must be different with your money. You must be different how you handle some of these things. Uh, Exodus 22 goes in and talks about how you deal with people who are outsiders. And he reminds them, you at one point were outsiders in Egypt and they treated you poorly so that when you encounter people from outsiders, you must treat them better. See, even in contrast, he's going, you were treated one way in Egypt and this is how the world taught. uh, treated you but you must be a country that treats people differently you treat your time you treat you treat your money you treat people he, all of it is him trying to go you do it differently he has a lot of commands about how you deal with sexuality because he wants you to be different than the world around the point is the law is given in order to form a community i want to bring this how, how does this apply to us we already read in first peter 2 that in the new covenant in christ he has built his church He is forming a covenant people called the church. These, we are the ones that are part of this covenant relationship with him. Now we talked about, and we uh, here at New Hope, we say that there are three marks of a mature believer in Christ. First is that you're surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. That he is king and you're surrendered unto him as king. Second is that you live surrounded by a community of faith. This is where we're getting this idea from, is that God didn't just redeem individuals. He redeemed a nation and a country so that as a country, they will be contrast to the world around you. Specifically, Matthew 5, verse 14, you are a light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, when we read that, immediately go, I, Jonathan, am a light unto the world around me. Yes, that because of the gospel in my life, I can be a light to the world around me. But you've got to understand something. In the Greek here, it's plural. He's not saying, you, Jonathan. In the south, if we were translating it, he'd say, y'all are a city on a hill. The point is, Jesus is saying, you as the community are a city on a hill. That it's when you together as a community live differently than the world around you. You live obedient to my commandments. You're forming a countercultural community. And you as a community are like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Which is why we say living surrendered by community of faith. And I want you to get this. That the third point of Mark's maturity is living sent to the world around you. I want you to see that you don't go from being surrendered to Jesus to just being sent. But you do it through a community. Because as individuals, we as individuals will not change the world. But we as a church community together living on mission can change the world. The point is that God has not given each of us just individual missions, which he has. But he has given the church a corporate mission to be a city on a hill. Therefore, we in the church must be different. We must treat our time different, our money different. We must treat people different. We must be different. People on the outside must look in and say, hey, they love people better. They care for people better. They do things differently. What's going on? We must be a city that shines a light out. But we do that as a community. So one of the reasons why we put an emphasis on being a part of a covenant community. We put an emphasis on being a part so how do you reconcile with what we're saying with, with just an idea that many have in our New York individualistic spirituality, just me my, me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit is all I need? No, not true. It's just not you, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a community that you're called to in Christ. You are brought into a covenant relationship. And so there's a, one of the reasons why we emphasize that if you're not a member here, be a member somewhere. Is there a community that you're accountable to? Is there a community that you hold accountable? Is there a community that encourages you? Is there a community in which that can encourage you, that can shape you into being faithful and living out the mission of shining a light on the world, being a city on a hill? How are you in covenant relationship? How are you being formed? It is a response of his grace and it's a purpose of the law. So one, the purpose of the law, he brings us into intimate relationship. Two, it creates a countercultural community. And three, it reveals the idols of our heart. It reveals the idols of our heart. Look at Exodus chapter twenty, beginning in verse two. So it's the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and he says this I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Once again, I want you to notice. Before he gets to the first commandment, he once again establishes, you're already saved. I've already brought you out of slavery. That what I'm about to give you is not a means to salvation. It's not a means to my love. It's not a means to my grace. But it is a response to it. So he says, you have already been out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Second, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. We're going to pause there and we're not going to read the rest of the commandments because we don't need to and I'll tell you why. Um, But there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, faithfully summed up in these ten commandments. And I'm going to argue that even within these first two commandments, it is the foundation for every other commandment or every other sin. And the foundational problem is this, is that we take things and make them more important than God. This is what the first and second commandment is showing us, is we take things and make them more important than God. So the second commandment, you shall have no carved images or you shall make nothing. One of the reasons is, I want us to think back to our very first week in Genesis chapter 1. Why might God say you are to create no carven image of me? And the answer is, is because we are already his image bearers in his kingdom. See, what is a carved image? It is a picture of God in the heavenlies here on earth. It's a picture that you bow down and worship tangibly right there. It's a picture of God in place. And one of the reasons he says not to do any carved image, and I want us to get this, is because we were what? Created in his image. We are his image bearers in the world around us. But even to the heart of the commandment, you shall make for yourself, or excuse me, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, Why? Because that immediately causes you to break the first commandment of having no other gods but him. And the second we make, here's the fundamental problem of all sin, every sin, is that we make things in this world and put it more important than God. Let me give some illustrations with just what we might say time, talents, and treasures. Time. You know, we live in a busy culture. New York is busy, and one of the reasons we're busy practically is just simply it takes forever to get from point A to point B, so you have less free time, right? And so part of living in a big city is, yes, it takes up time, but also because of other reasons, we're just really, really busy. Now, it's one thing to be busy out of needs, but I'm finding in my two years in New York that people are often busier than they have to be, and I'm trying to figure out why. And so a lot of times the issue is that we... You know, struggle with busyness, but what's really at the heart of business? And I'm finding for a lot of people that they're busy trying to accomplish something because accomplishing that something or fulfilling that something is actually an idol in their heart. Let me illustrate it through a personal example. When I was first beginning in ministry, I first came on staff at the church that I grew up at. And I've been at that church since second grade. And so I went through kids ministry at this church. I went through middle school ministry, high school ministry, college ministry. My first job was 13 years old working in the preschool and babysitting kids throughout the week because they would have activities here in the week. And so I'd work in the preschool department. So my first job was at this church. I worked in the facilities. I mowed the lawn. I painted buildings. I painted the walls. I did all these things. I was a summer intern in student ministry and eventually came on full staff, full-time staff. And I remember being on full-time staff. I was that person that everybody asked to do something because they knew I would say yes. And I had a close relationship with everybody. So like the kids director, when I was full-time on staff, married, full-time on staff, the kids director was my kids director. She was there over 25 years. So we had a good relationship. So if she needed something, she walked down the hall, knocked on my door and said, Jonathan, will you do this? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then middle school or high school ministry—they'd ask me to do some facilities. would say, "Hey, Jonathan, I know you, you know how to do this. Would you do this, or would you do that, and do this?" And what happened was I just got really, really busy. And my college pastor took me to lunch, and he was like, "Hey, man, how things are going?" I'm like, "Man, I'm just busy." He was like, "Why are you so busy?" He was my boss also, and he was like, "I'm not giving you that much work. Why are you so busy?" And I said, "Well, I'm trying to help out, uh, you know, kids ministry, and I'm trying to do this." He said, "Why are you doing all those things?" I said, "Well, because I can," and they asked, "Like, I'm available. I have time. I'm doing those things." And he says, but if you're so busy that you're getting burnt out and exhausted, you're not properly allocating your time. You're not resting. So you're being disobedient to that commandment to rest. But he said, Jonathan, I, I think there's a deeper issue. And I said, what do you mean? And he began to ask some questions. And eventually he looked at me and he said this. He said, Jonathan, I really think you're busy because you're, you like the idea of being the person that people depend on. And you're idolizing trying to get people's approval and wanting to be the person to depend on. And so really the issue is your heart is that you're idolizing what people think of you as opposed to just worshiping God and admitting that you can't do it all and saying no and resting. I was like, well, thanks for lunch. Appreciate it, you know. But he loved me enough to be honest. Here's the point is what I had masked as serving people was actually an idol of trying to seek people's approval. See, what was in that moment was there was something I placed more important because I should have been fearing God most. I should have just been seeking His approval most. But in my sin, I allowed something at the core of my heart. And what did I do? I placed it above God. So the issue wasn't time. Let's think about treasures for a second. How we spend our money might just be more than money itself. So, one of the things that I encounter, this isn't just in New York, it is amplified in New York, but it's everywhere is that maybe someone's working really, 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 really hard. They're working to save money. They're working to build a retirement. They're working in their career. They're giving their time. They're giving their talents. They're giving their money. So maybe they're being stingy with their money or saving with their money. Point is, they're making all these decisions. And I often hear what sounds wise and is wise, but there can be an idol at the center of it is, well, I'm just working and saving. So if a rough day comes, I will have money to provide for myself. That makes a lot of sense. I don't advise you not to save money. But oftentimes, if we're not careful, what we're also showing is we're working really hard to make sure we have enough. So if a rough time, moment, rough time comes, we can depend on money as opposed to trusting God in that moment. See, even in small things, what sounds good for me, serving people, that's what I'm doing, but really there's an idol of approval. I'm saving money, I'm being stingy with my money, and I'm doing this with my money. Yes, the wisdom there is, hey, you're saving, and that's wise, but is it possible that you're actually trusting your money to save you more than you're trusting God to save you? See, the point, the point is, whether it be the other Ten Commandments of you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, simply you shall not lie. Why do we lie? You know, for for me, a lot of times, I make dumb lies. A lot of times, I find when the Lord convicts me of lies, they're just enough true, but they're a little bit exaggerated. Why? Because I want... It, it, the lies of sin, sure, but really, I lie because I'm wanting to impress somebody. One of the things... I have some friends growing up that would fish a lot, and um, there was the thing called the... Well, we called it the, the fisher's tail. Tail meaning lie, not like the tail of a dog, but like tail like a tall tale. And what it was was when they would take a picture of a fish they caught, they would push the fish away from their body so it would be closer to the camera so it looked bigger than it actually was. Why? Because they're wanting people to be impressed with something that's not actually true in their lives. They're putting a facade out there. Listen to me. We do it all the time on social media. We mask the reality of our lives through social media and other things because we're trying to impress people with a reality that's not real because the idol of our heart is we want to impress and seek the approval of others as opposed to just finding fear and trusting God. Do you see how the Ten Commandments and how the law is revealing the idols of our heart? What is it That we actually worship and seek and pursue above all. And the Ten Commandments and the commandments of God are shining a light to the crevice of our heart. That's why Jesus would sum it up and he says all the law and commandments can be summed up like this. Is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The point of all of it is to call us to love him and every single commandment points out ways in which we don't love him. It's all about love. It's all about what we said at the beginning. It is out of his love he gives us the commandments in order to show us the idols of our heart so that we can fix those, deal with those, and reciprocate our love unto him. So the purpose of the law is to create an intimate relationship, is to create a counterculture community, is to reveal the idols of our heart, and lastly, the purpose of the law points to Jesus. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 24. We're going to flip there and we're going to begin to wrap things up. But I want us to see how clearly and beautifully right here in the law it points to Jesus. Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So there's a picture, marriage moment here. God has already made his covenant and vowed to them by saving them and bestowing his love upon them. Now he gave them the covenant and gave them the law, and he's saying, Now this is how, this is the vow I'm asking you to return, is that you be faithful, and they do. They give the vow and saying, We will be faithful, we will obey all things. So this covenant moment takes place. And what happens? Verse 8. And Moses took the blood. Where did this blood come? Clearly from a sacrifice. He took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. We talked about this with Genesis chapter 15, but what's the whole point of every time a covenant is made, there's, there's an animal dying and there's blood being, sh- being shed. What, what is the point of that? And here's the point of it: is We, in our culture, we sign contracts but this was primarily an oral culture and so they made covenants and they made contracts by not dealing with necessarily legality of paper but simply making a statement through a sacrifice of the curse that will come upon you if you break this commandment so in this moment when they say we will be faithful unto you and a sacrifice is made and blood is poured on them it's simply the statement is if you are not faithful to the covenant then the curse that came upon this animal will come upon you. It's a strong statement here. That you, if you're not faithful to the covenant God makes with you, you and God will bring on curses on you that comes on the covenant. What you're saying is, when you agree to it through the sacrifice in this way, you're saying, I am committed, and if I'm not committed, may I be cursed like this animal was cursed. Well, it wouldn't take long if you go on and read the rest of Exodus. It doesn't take long. Moses goes up on the mountain, and within 40 days, they've already forgotten about God. They've already taken gold, and they made a golden calf, and they began to sacrifice and worship to the golden calf. I mean, it didn't take long at all. God just said, don't do this. And they said, okay, we'll be faithful. They go to sleep. They wake up, and like, I think I'll make a golden calf today. Like, I, th- I think that's a good idea. No, it's not a good idea, Right? And so, if you go and read uh, that part of Exodus, God what? Says, I'm going to bring down destruction and curses on them. Why? Because that was what is due for them breaking the covenant. We see Moses intercede, and God's grace relents. But how does this point to Jesus? It points to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1. We studied this, but I want you to see what 1 Peter says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and listen to this, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, and they were having this Passover meal where the Passover was reminding them of how God had brought them out of Egypt and had created this covenant law with them. Remember, God showed His mercy on them because... and. A lamb was sacrificed in their place and blood was covered and they were under the blood of the lamb. We talked about this last week. So thousands of years later, when they're celebrating this moment, Jesus is at the Passover and he says, what? This is my body that is broken for you. This and he takes the, uh, the wine glass and he says, this represents my blood, which I shed for you, which is your new covenant. See, we read covenant, we don't understand very well, but I promise you, the disciples in the first century Jews in that moment would have understood the blood of the covenant. And Peter is pointing out that it's through Jesus, the shedding of his blood. Listen to me. Because we were not faithful to God, you and I deserve the curse of that lamb animal that was sprinkled. We deserve death. That because of our rebellion against God and our sin against Him, we owe Him a debt of our life. But Jesus steps in and Scripture says that He became the curse for us. That He who knew no sin took on our sin. He took on the curse. He took on and His blood was shed in our place so that we could receive the sprinkling of blood of the sanctification and forgiveness of our sins. This is the argument of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So once you get blood, flesh, he's, the, the writer of Hebrews is pointing to the crucifixion. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Remember what does a priest do? Ushers people into the presence of God. So he's saying, through the crucifixion, Christ paid our payments and is now our high priest on our behalf. Therefore, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts, what? Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Sprinkled. Why is he saying that? Because in the Old Testament, God created his covenant with his people By sprinkling blood on them. That that was the payment of the covenant vow. And here's what Jesus is saying. You were unfaithful to this covenant vow. You couldn't have lived up to it. Therefore, you deserve a curse of eternal damnation. But I stepped in your place. And I was your redemption price. It was through my body that the blood was shed. And I'm ushering in a new covenant. That it's through my blood. That all past, present, and future sins are forgiven. That you are brought into covenant through grace. And you are kept in covenant through the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you see the beauty of what's happening? That the law in the Old Testament pointed to our sin. Romans would make it clear. But Galatians also says that it's now because of Christ we can be faithful. So the law was never a means to love to receive God's love, or a means to grace, but it does point to us in ways in which we are not faithful to Him, so that we can repent of our sin, and through the grace of Jesus, now because we've received His grace, because we have received His love, we now reciprocate that love by being faithful to His commands. And so this gives us the perfect picture of balance, what is often true in our hearts. Because one of two things often happens. We... Studying God's word, turn to legalism, which says deep in our hearts, I got to obey the command of God. I got to obey the command of God. I got to obey. Or he's going to be mad at me. Or he's not going to love me anymore. Or he's not going to give me his grace. So I got to do these things. I got to do these things. I got to do these things. If I don't do these things, there's guilt and there's shame. Why? Because you are thinking in your heart that by being obedient, you can earn God's love. Listen to me. There is nothing you can do. To earn God's love. Think about that. There's nothing you can do to, today to earn God's love. Listen to me. If you choose to read your Bible today or not read your Bible today, God loves you no differently. I want that to sink in for a second. But in our sinful hearts, we tend towards legalism. So we read, we study, we do these things because God expects them and we do them out of a way in our heart to earn His love. What are we doing? We're idolizing ourselves but the other end of the spectrum is we also intend towards freedom, too much freedom. Well, if God loves me, he's going to forgive me no matter what, then I can just live however I want. See, but if, if we lean towards legalism or we lean towards freedom, meaning we can do whatever we want, we're missing it, the whole point of all of it. See, because legalism is debunked by this because God isn't saying I've given you the law in order to earn it. I've already saved you. You, you can rest in my grace. But because I love you... You can return that love by being faithful to my commandments. So it's not you can live however you want, because what you're saying is I don't care about the car. Do whatever you want with the car. Make it dirty. I don't care. You're saying I don't care. Back to that illustration from earlier. When you live however you want, you're saying you don't really actually value God's love. Do whatever you want with it. I don't really care. But legalism is a way of trying to earn God's love, both of which we want to stay away from. Listen to me. On every faithful road, there's a ditch on each side that we want to try to avoid. And the gospel is a faithful road where we see and rightfully see that we we are not obedient to God's commands to earn His grace, but because of His grace, He gives us His commands to walk faithfully in the center of the road in intimate relationship with Him and serve Him and honor Him with our lives. See that? And I want us to see that's not just New Testament. But that's Old Testament. And right here in the giving of the law, he is going, hey, I'm going to give this to you so we can have this treasured relationship. But at the end of the day, you're going to fail. But I'm already here in Exodus 19, I'm pointing to Jesus because he's going to step in and pay the curse for you. So the question is for you, is have you ever received the sprinkling of God's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ? Figurative here. Because you may, for those who may not have grown up in church, you're like, is that a thing they do? Do they really sprinkle blood on people? No. It's figurative, right? It's figurative in this idea, this is what Christ has done for us when he died. But when we step in and make him Lord and Savior, and we surrender to him as Lord and Savior, he forgives us of all our sins. And Hebrew says, we've been washed white as snow. That that sprinkling, he has purified us, and he has cleansed us. Have you ever stepped into that covenant relationship with him? And listen to me. He's already made the payment for you. He's calling you to it. In the same way that Exodus 19 says that he swooped down and grabbed his people. I want to see the picture of Christ. Philippians 2 says he stepped out of his glory. And I want to give it. It's a picture. I'm paraphrasing. a little bit, But it's a picture of an eagle swooping down and paying the price so that he can call his people unto himself. See, precisely what God has done. He stepped out of heaven, swooped down. And is calling his covenant people unto himself. When Jesus was died and was resurrected. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Which Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But you have been raised with Christ. You have been made alive. Salvation. And he has raised you and seated you in the heavenly realm. See that? A picture that in salvation he comes down and swoops us up. And it says we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful picture of Him and what He does in His saving grace. Have you ever been picked up by Jesus, so to speak? And if not, would you surrender to Him in salvation tonight? But second, if you have, the invitation for you as believers, practically is see that He's given you a commandment to walk in intimate relationship with Him and in covenant community with others. It's a call to walk out of isolation, but to walk into a community where you can be accountable to, where you can serve, you can be faithful to, and that we together, are living surrendered and living surrounded by one another, and then can live sent and be a city on a hill that shines in this community. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful picture, for the reality that we are unfaithful to your covenant commands. And James chapter 2 says that if we kept 612 of them, but failed in the last one, then we'd be accountable for all of them. We've got to be perfect, and none of us are perfect. So therefore, we deserve the curse that came with that covenant, which was death. But, Jesus in His love swooped down, so to speak, was born of a virgin, lived among us in a perfect sinless life, and then went to the cross and bore the curse that we deserved. He bore it on himself. He stepped in as that sacrificial lamb so that we could receive the sprinkling and the purification of his love so that we could be a part of his covenant people. And the beauty is, is our dependence on the, being a part of the covenant is not our works, but it's his grace. So, Jesus, we thank you that you accept us in your grace. You keep us in your grace. And for all eternity, you will swoop us into heaven with you in grace. And so, Father, let us have the freedom to know that when we fail, you don't love us any less. But let us reciprocate that love and a desire to be faithful to your commandments. Let us cherish you and your commandments, not to earn your love, but simply to display your love that we've already received. So Father, I pray over this room. I pray that salvation would come to hearts that need salvation, that encouragement, freedom, and grace would come to hearts that need it. And also an encouragement For us to walk faithfully with you and to know that even when moments we try to walk faithful and we mess up, your grace is sufficient doesn't mean we stop trying to walk faithful, that just means when we do fall down you're always there to pick us up and for that we're grateful we worship you, we glorify you, we honor you thank you Jesus for salvation that we couldn't earn that we don't deserve. Thank you, Jesus. Help me when I fail. But I love you. I give my life to you. I worship you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.